Hello, this is John Renaud, and you're listening to the Mobile Radio Carnival via the CEF.world. Check us out, Uncommon Genius for the Common Types. All right, Freddie, we're going to make this look easy. You and me just sitting here talking about stuff? Fine. You comfortable, sir? Comfortable, yes. All right, fantastic. My name is John Renaud, and I am doing uh, the first of my podcasts uh, with Freddie Kawano. Is that the right way to say your name, Freddie? Well, you, people call me Fred yes, Kawano, sir. but uh, Fred is just a nickname. Uh huh. My, my Japanese name, Shigeru. Shigeru. Yes. Shigeru and, Kawano. And what does that mean, Freddie? Well, Shigeru is, is a uh, word that means. Um, Sort of like um, blossoming. Oh, nice. Yeah. So you are just a blossoming savage. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into, Freddie and I will get into our, our bit about savages a, a little bit later. But first, we're going to get to get to know Fred. Fred is a rather unique fellow. I met him. We we're recording today at the Dresden, the world-famous Dresden. Wouldn't you say it's a world-class place, Freddie? Absolutely. I've been to numerous restaurants and bars and this is it. Yeah, in fact, you're one of the uh, oldest standing patrons here at the at the Dresden. It's about 25 years. 25 yeah, years. Yeah, con- con- consecutive years. Did they do they set a placard by your your seat? Oh no no no, there's no <laughs> need to do anything like that. I know because you like to be a regular guy, don't oh, you? Yeah, just but, a regular. But you are the farthest thing from a regular person, and we're going to show a little bit of that to the audience today, Freddie. So. So let's start with, uh, I think you told me, Freddie tells some of the best stories ever, but I think you first told me you were born and raised on a farm, or you were raised on a farm in California, correct? Oh, yes. Born and raised on a farm in the Sunwalking Valley. Yeah. At an uh, island in the Sunwalking Valley. Yeah. Uh, called Bacon Island. Bacon Island. Yeah. And um, my uh, record would show that I was born... In the family house, uh-huh. and uh, the person who delivered me was my father. Right. Yeah, there was no doctor, no hospitals, anything like that. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. So your father delivered you. Obviously, your mother did as well, right? Oh, she had course. something to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> of, course, of course. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah. And so you told me. I think some of the first stories you told me was like when you were a young lad on the farm, and I think it was a sandwich story at school. Oh yes. That's a great story. Well, that was um, when I uh, first went to uh, elementary school uh-huh. as a kindergartner. Uh-huh. And uh, my mother, not knowing too much about the American ways, yes. uh, made a rice bowl uh, for lunch uh-huh. for school. She made a rice, triangular rice. Uh, um, like a patty? To, yeah, yeah. To put together. And in the center, she put a, um, plum, a, a plum, a red, red plum in the center. Okay. And that was my uh, lunch. Yeah. And um, I sat down together with the rest of the boys uh-huh. in the school, uh, in the cornfield, so because that's where they went to eat in the cornfield. Right. And I went with them together, and we were um, ready to eat, and I was a. Uh, only Japanese uh, American there. Right. The rest of the fellows uh, were um, young boys from Italy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, we were ready to eat. And I took out my um, 
uh, food, and the the, uh, the rest of the boys took out their food. Right. The first thing that I noticed was that they all had sandwich. Well, yeah. because today sandwich. <laughs> they had all had salami, yes, right. probably, huh? I'm the only I'm the only guy with a, a rice, right. you know, uh, and I felt uh, immediately I was out of place. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I must have made a, a move or a facial on my feature that caused the boys to realize, young as they were, uh-huh. that I uh, felt slightly out of place because of that um, rice singing. Yeah. And uh, one of the boys, as young as he was, just to go to shoot the kind of understanding he had, he took part of his sandwich and uh, gave it to me because I hid my rice because oh, yeah. it was so different. And when I went home, I told my mother about it. Yeah. And I got the scolding of my life and even <coughs> a beating. You got, because you got yourself in trouble, huh, Freddie? I, I accepted food, food from someone else. <coughs> I just have to fix this light real quick, Freddie, and then yeah. we're set to go. You see, she had taught me so you get, I'm sorry, you got in trouble because you gave your food to someone else? Is that what happened? No, I did not give my food to anyone else. I hid it because oh, it was I gotcha. so different from gotcha. everyone else. And uh, these um, young Italian kids, uh, they had sandwiches, uh-huh. and one of the boys gave me part of his sandwich. Oh, that's cool. And I uh, thought so I was friendly. So I'm, just to be together with them, I accepted the sandwich and ate the sandwich with the boys. And I told my mother about it when I got home. And that's when she became angry, scolded me severely, and I got a physical beating. Oh, no. Yeah. She stated that a Japanese boy should not be ashamed of eating a Japanese food. And she thought it was almost as if I were a beggar right. uh, to accept food from someone else. She did not want me to accept food from anyone else. So is that the last time you accepted food from anyone else, Freddie? Um, I have... <laughs> you know, I never told my mother about you it from go. time to time, you know. But um, that was the situation, very strict about um, not being beggar-like. Right. Yeah. Right. And um, that was one way she was trying to teach me um, about the Japanese morals. Right. Yeah. And she told me the story of a uh, samurai uh, who was hungry and has not eaten for days. Uh-huh. But... He pretended he was not hungry by having a toothpick sticking out of his mouth. Uh, and uh, she was trying to tell me that um, a Japanese, um, no matter how hungry he is, is not going to go around begging for food right. or accepting food. Um, you have to be on your own, not uh, taking things from others. So you were then, in fact, raised in a traditional Japanese home? Yes, sir. Pretty much traditional, yeah. Right. And then you were on a farm. Was it your father's farm, or did your father work the farm? Uh, well, my father worked on the farm. Uh-huh. My mother helped out. And when we grew up, that is, uh, by growing up, I mean, six or seven. Yeah. <laughs> we're already helping on the farm. Yeah. Yes. And I think you told me you used to do some fishing and things like that, so it was kind of a leisurely fun oh, place yes, to be sometimes, and a lot of work other times, I believe, is what you told me. Well, the way we, the, most of the young boys uh, 
in on these farms, living on these farms. Right. Um, they lived far apart. The farmers did. So we um, enjoyed ourselves going fishing. Right. And going hunting. You yeah, know? that's great. That was one of the things that we did quite often. What was your favorite thing to hunt? Was it quail or was it um, duck well, or? We had a. Uh, my father had a twelve gauge shotgun, uh-huh. and, and I had a. Uh, 410 gauges. Gotcha. Yeah, the 410. And uh, yes, uh, we hunted for quail, we hunted for pheasants, uh, things like that. Also ducks, uh, geese. Uh, yeah. yeah, and rabbit as well, I assume, right? Yeah, we could hunt for rabbit. In fact, the uh, San Joaquin County. Right. Uh, at that time, required us to shoot the rabbit. Oh, Because yeah. they were um, um, digging up the grounds and creating a problem for the farmers. Gotcha. And so, um, um, we used to go hunting for the rabbit, but I couldn't shoot them. They looked so cute yeah. and everything. I just didn't want to shoot them. <laughs> that makes sense to me. Yeah. Hey, give me one second, Freddie, and let me check something because I'm doing all this myself, and then we're going to continue. All we're right. talking with uh, my buddy Freddie from all the right. Dresden. That's all right. All right. Thank you, sir. All right. I think we're going again. Freddie, what do you got to say? So we were talking about you um, – being on the farm, but shortly after you kind of grew up, or you say six or seven is what you consider growing up, uh, I believe, if I understand the story correctly, you ended up in uh, an internment camp, you and your family as well. Yes, uh, that was a shocker. <clears throat> On the morning of December 8th, the principal of the school, that's after the bombing had already occurred. Right. I had not even heard of that, of Pearl Harbor being bombed yet. Yes. And uh, the principal called a meeting of all homerooms. That meant the entire school into the school auditorium. Right. And that was the first time I heard that Japan had bombed Pearl Harbor. Okay. And it was uh, uh, listening to the speech by the President of the United States uh-huh. uh, of the Declaration of War Against Japan. And I will tell you this, that when I heard what Japan had done, yes, I felt ashamed because that's where my father and mother came from. Right. And uh, I loved America. I believed in America. Mm-hmm. And I still do. always have. To me, some of the greatest heroes were George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Yes. And, uh, of course, uh, my mother and father used to talk to us about Japanese heroes, too. Mm-hmm. Like in during a, a Russian Japanese war, Admiral Togo, and so on. But um, at school, we learned about George Washington and then we from Abraham Lincoln. Right. I'll tell you, the school teachers must have been great because they held my attention, the students' attention, and we believed in them. Right. Yes. And one thing I remember, still do, as well as I did at the time when I was a child. I remember one that we were all lined up in front of the school, uh-huh. and we were raising the flag of the United States, and we pledged allegiance to the flag every morning. Right. There came a uh, Model T Ford, and when we were raising the flag, the driver of that Ford stopped. Right. He opened the door, got out. Oh, that's okay, Freddie. Here we go got out of the car, uh-huh. and he faced the flag. Right. Sorry. And as we were pledging allegiance to the flag. Yeah, he joined along. No, he didn't do it. Oh. Like a, he bowed. Oh. All during the time that we pledged allegiance, he bowed. Right. To the flag, 
and then he got into his, back into his um, automobile and uh -huh. drove on. It was a Japanese man. So I just learned this uh, that bowing is an art to itself. That you, if a you're bowing, say for the emperor, you bow a full bow, and then if you, it, it's it's based on what you, what respect you give the person. Correct? How how deep you bow? Is that correct, Freddie? Mm -hmm. And so, did the guy do a full deep bow, or did he do just? Well, a, he uh, he bowed in a normal way. I gotcha. Yes, I gotcha. And um, maybe he believed in doing that because he believed in living in America and right. respecting the flag. Right. But quite aside from that, I think maybe he was trying to show the Japanese-American children oh. there, as if to say, children, this is something. I came from Japan, mm. but I too respect the flag of the United States and I bow. Right. Yes. And so you ended up, shortly after that, in a camp with your family though, correct? Yes. Um, we were sent to um, Tule Lake. Uh huh. Yeah, with only the things you could carry. Right. Yeah, and uh, after we got to the camp, it was horrible. Everything was just a wild, horrible. Everything in a mess. Right. But the Tule Lake, they call it a concentration camp today. Yes. For the photograph from the air makes it look almost exactly like a German concentration camp. Because it was set up Rows after rows, these barracks. Mm -hmm. But at that time, it was called uh, uh, the internment camp. Right. And uh, uh, after the war was over, I was listening to a television program in which there were three or four professors at um, one of the uh, New York's Jewish educational seminary, uh -huh. university level, and they were debating that particular question, whether the concentration camp in the United States where the Japanese Americans were sent, and the Japanese as well, was a concentration camp or was it just a relocation camp? Right. And um, they all agreed amongst themselves that it was a concentration camp, mm -hmm. but that there was a difference between the American concentration camp of the Japanese or Japanese Americans as compared to the concentration camp of the Jews in Germany. The ones in Germany were, in fact, a death camp. Right. That was the distinction. The Tule Lake concentration camp was nothing compared to uh, the ones you had in Germany, we right. could play baseball, go to school. In fact, I graduated from the high school within the camp itself. Yes. And uh, there were libraries, uh, uh, public libraries. You could get newspapers uh, of all kinds of books that you wanted to read. You could order it through the librarian if it's not there. And there were school dances, uh, baseball games, uh, basketball games, uh, motion picture theaters. Uh, um, so there were ways, certainly, yes, to keep busy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> except uh, that the whole lifestyle was changed. Uh, you see, the families couldn't really eat together as a family and oh, as a normal oh. It was just a huge dining hall. All the different families were in there together at the right. same time. And um, it was, it was um, from my standpoint, it was terrible. And um, you have to constantly listen 
to the anger of the people for being put into uh-huh. a concentration camp, constantly seeing barbar fence and the guard towers and um, things like that that um, uh, made you feel that you were definitely not free. Of course not. We were not. We couldn't go out and do right. anything it felt like. You're there behind a barbar fence. And so um, you were definitely not free. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that is a killing feeling. I can only imagine. I imagine that was a very difficult time yeah. for your family in particular because as a kid, maybe you could adjust to things, but I'm sure your parents felt like that everything had been taken from yeah. them. So that had to be pretty difficult. And uh, then when you wanted to take a bath, for example, mm-hmm. there was no, no private bath. Everybody had to take a shower. Right. In a public shower. Right. And, um, well, Nothing became private. <laughs> right. Everything was just public. Everything was communal, so yeah, to speak. Communal, yes. Didn't you tell me that you had um, buddies that would sign up for the service, so that you actually decided that you sign, you wanted to sign up early, and left for the army. In fact, right, the United States Army. Well, that was uh, when I got out of um, the camp. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the war had ended. Oh, okay. Yeah, and. Uh, I wanted to get out of the camp. Right. But I did one thing terrible. What was one that? Thing, I, can't, yeah. I can't imagine you doing anything terrible for anybody. This was. I, it killed me to do it. I felt that way that I was dying to do it. Right. What was it? But um, the government of the United States told the people in Tule Lake uh, that if you had a U.S. citizenship, uh, mm-hmm. we would give you a chance to renounce it. Uh, Oh, wow. And if you renounce it, uh, when the war ends, you're going to be sent to Japan. Oh, wow. A lot of people renounced it because they were so angry at the way they were treated and because of the racial discrimination against the Japanese. Right. In the Congress of the United States, for example, congressmen were saying, referring to the Japanese-Americans as Japs. Right. And they used to make speeches like, shoot them if you see a Jap. The governor of California was uh, totally anti-Japanese. Even the Attorney General of the United States uh, rode into uh, governorship being extremely um, anti-Japanese or Japanese-American. And um, so um, the Japanese-Americans were called Japs. and they weren't even uh, they were not even allowed at the beginning to even join the military if, even if they wanted oh, to. Oh, I got it. Yeah. However, I had renounced my citizenship and I thought I'll never be able to get out and uh, I'm going to be shipped to Japan. Right. And uh, since uh, uh, I figured that I would probably be sent to Japan, I better learn how to uh, write some Japanese. So they had a Japanese language school within right. the camp. So I went to the language school to try to learn some Japanese. But in the final lens, when the war ended, everything was in a flux. And uh, I rethought, what am I going to do? Right. Confusion. Uh, But I decided, uh, what a mistake I made uh, to renounce my U.S. citizen, what a crazy fool I must have been to do that. Right. But I was angry and everything and uh, thought that I had been rejected by the American people and um, 
I thought uh, there was no future for me in the United States because of that uh, type of treatment. Uh-huh. But I took a chance and wrote a letter to the Attorney General of the United States, what I had done. Right. And um, is it possible that I can, uh, now that the war had ended, I can go out of the camp? Uh, that was in 1946. Uh, okay. And uh, I got a letter from the Attorney General, and I was surprised. He said, you rejected your citizenship, but at the time you did it, you were not a free man. Therefore, we refused. The United States government refuses to accept oh. your rejection. So that uh, now that the war ended and so on, I'm back to the original status quo. Right. So I had my citizenship. In effect, he said, I never lost my citizenship. Right. And I didn't want to stay in California because it had angered me so much and um, uh, what we've gone through. Mm-hmm. So I decided to go to New York just by myself. My family did not want me to leave the family, but I said, I'm going. And I packed one suitcase and I had $300 on me. Right. And I was, uh, at the time I left Tule Lake uh, um, concentration camp, I was the only guy that left uh, that day. They took me to, I believe it was South Bend, Oregon. Okay. To catch a train uh, with a ticket that they got me to go to New York. Uh-huh. And uh, I waited for the train to come in. And finally the train came in. And there I am, a Japanese-American, looking like a Japanese, getting on the train by myself. Right. And when I got in the train, the train stopped there only for a short while, just um, maybe five minutes. Then I got in the train, I was shocked when I got in the train. Okay. Because it was a troop train. Oh, wow. It's a train after train after train. Of all things, the Marines would fought against Japan and they killed Japanese and seen their comrades killed on the battlefield. They were in the train coming back home. Right. And here I am, a Japanese-looking guy that had been shooting at over there in the warm in the Pacific gets on. And when I saw that, I was shocked. And I thought, wow, am I going to be in trouble right. with all these uh, <laughs> yeah. soldiers that have uh, fought on against the Japanese? But I was double shocked when... Hmm. Instead of uh, talking to me in any angry way or anything like that, uh-huh. they talked to me, of all things, whether I am from the concentration camp in the United States. Uh-huh. And instead of being angry at me, they showed sympathy. Right, for you and being I, there. Yes, I was surprised that the Marines, young men who have fought against the Japanese in the Pacific Theater of War, knew about the concentration camps Japanese-Americans and Japanese-America were sent. Right. And they were very friendly, very um, uh, sorry, they said, about the way we were treated. And believe it or not, from um, South Bend, Oregon, all the way on to Chicago, 
they would not, these Marines would not allow me to buy my breakfast or lunch or dinner. They insisted that they want to buy me the, the breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and they paid for my, for my food all the way to Chicago. And when I said, don't, no, you don't have to do that. Right. Don't do that. They insisted that. It seemed as though they were buying with each other right. to buy me and uh, these food, and ultimately I accepted it, and they treated me very well and respectfully, um, and I being <laughs> the only Asian guy on there all wow. the way to Chicago, yeah. And uh, that had a great impact upon me, you know, almost as much as much an impact as... Uh, what, uh, when I learned about Pearl Harbor, right. I felt I, when I learned about Japan bombing Pearl Harbor, well, I would ne I've never experienced uh, that experience again. I felt as if I was dying. Uh, wow. Yeah. But here, I did not experience uh, that, uh, the feeling of dying. It was another kind of a feeling that right. I have never expected before. I expected so much that the Marines. Uh, will be so hateful towards me because of the battles that they've gone through right. and seeing their buddies being killed. And yet, here they were showing sympathy and understanding and how sorrowful they were that they, when they learned that the Japanese and Japanese Americans were put into a concentration camp. Wow, that's a great story, yeah. Freddie. But in addition to that, I began to learn some other things. Uh huh. For example, We've heard of the name Ronald Reagan. Yes. Of course. Yes, President he, Reagan. He, when, when he was an actor, he yes. was with the Air Force. I didn't. I was not aware of this, but I've learned since the war ended that Ronald Reagan was a, one of the persons that wrote letters to the President of the United States and protested the fact that the Japanese Americans were being treated in this way. Yeah. And I also learned that there was a, another person by the name of Admiral Spruance. Uh -huh. He's credited with the victory of the Battle of Midway. Right. And he also strongly spoke out um, against the President of the United States for putting the Japanese and Japanese Americans without a trial or without any charge right. of wrongdoing into concentration camp. And these were things I learned afterward. I never heard of these things when right. I was in the camp. I can understand yeah. that. That's, but I mean that is that is interesting that you got to experience these guys and they these Marines that, and they totally did opposite of what you expected, and how it affects your life. But you did, if I remember correctly, you told me you ended up in England for a little bit of time. Oh, oh, oh yes. Um, you told me about this big festive was, feeling at the square where everyone does the speeches or something. I remember oh, you telling me that story. Yeah, you know, these open squares. That, you they didn't care about anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> They're having love affairs going all the way. Yeah. With hundreds of uh, uh, English women and American soldiers. Yeah. But as a matter of fact, um, uh, I heard that the British soldiers were right. very envious and angry towards American soldiers yeah. because they had more money. American soldiers had more money. Yeah. And um, I've... Uh, also, just recently, I was reading a book. They were um, talking about uh, World War II, and um, this is something I never knew. Right. N never even thought about it. 
You know, I thought all the soldiers, both British and American soldiers, were prepared to make the landing on D-Day. Uh-huh. You know, I was thinking what brave guys. You're going to face the German machine gun fires and everything. I never knew that the jails in England were full. Oh, wow, I didn't know that either. Of American and British soldiers who deserted. Right. They had no interest in partaking in that <laughs> activity. <laughs> I remember you telling me that story though about being in the square because you were explaining to me how you kind of you were shocked and kind of a because you were a young kid yeah and you were talking about how like a rude awakening it really was yeah. to you in a way because he's it was like a party in the street basically it was like Woodstock I, I remember I go oh it sounds like a, oh, a yes. an old version of Woodstock yeah. there I and, learned a lot in the U.S. Air Force yeah. And, um, well, we should explain that, too. You ended up, you started off in the Army, but you ended up in the Army Air Corps, correct? Well, no, I joined the U.S. Army right. Air Corps. Oh, I didn't know you started. Yes. Got you. As a matter of fact, when I tried to join the U.S. Army Air Corps, I could not pass the eye examination. And I said, heck, these Marines and all these people that I saw who risked their life fighting right. for America, and I have to be... An American who, when the war was taking place, I was in a concentration camp. Right. I never had a chance to be there shoulder to shoulder fighting for America. To me, that was a regret. Right. I know a lot of people might say, just thank God you weren't there. I, I can see that point. But for me, as an American, I felt that I had to be there. And uh, before we went into the camp, with some of my friends, we were seniors at Lodi Union High School. We were talking about enlisting in the um, right. military right after we graduated. Right. And uh, I never got a chance to do that at all. But to be able to um, join the Army Air Corps uh, was something that I cherished. Yeah. But it, I thought I would never make it because I failed the eye test. Right. And I said, darn it. Uh, yeah. Um, but before I left uh, the recruiting station in Columbus, Ohio, that's where I was at that time. Yeah, because we're going to talk about OU, too. Yeah. You went to Ohio State yeah. University. And uh, the officer that made the eye exam stated to me, you missed one letter. Right. It was supposed to be a letter which you called it, you made a mistake and called it a C. Come back tomorrow morning, we're going to test you on that one letter. Oh boy, that's nice of the guy, right? <laughs> There's no other letter other than an O. If you missed it as a C, right. that would be an O. So I went back the next morning <laughs> and, and you said, Oh, you passed. <laughs> there you go. Oh, baby, you got it now, <laughs> yeah. right, Freddie? Oh, that's funny. So just, uh, we'll jump back to Ohio State University because that's where you ended up going to university studies the first time. But will you talk a little bit about how the government tried to find you in later years and give you money for the fact that you were interred in a camp? Or that was, uh, uh, right. by that time I was already a school teacher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Graduated from Ohio State. Yeah, and we're going to go back and get that history. And then I'm... I got my teaching credential at USC. Right. And I uh, passed the examination to become a social studies teacher. Right. Uh, at um, 
in the LA Unified right. School District. You might be interested to know that the examination took about two hours, and I wanted to find out whether I passed that examination or not. So I went back to check it, you know, find out whether I passed that about a week later. Right. And I said, yes, you did, but you missed one question. And it started with an O. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to know what was the question I missed. What was the question? The question was who... Which one of these were names uh-huh. of leaders, female leaders of the world? Right. Was the first women leader of the world. The name, the names, Bob, there were five choices. Okay. I knew that Egypt was the old civilization and, and the name of Cleopatra was in them. So I, I thought it had to be her, man. I put Cleopatra on that was a mistake I made. Right. It was an Egyptian woman, but her name was Hatshepsut. Wow. And that's the first time I've ever heard of the name <laughs> It's the first time I've ever heard yeah. of it, Freddie. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I, I want to say that when I applied to the USC right. um, School of Education to get my teaching credentials, mm-hmm. uh, believe it or not, we had to take an entrance examination. And that examination took about two hours. Right. And I wasn't sure whether I was accepted or not. And my mother kept on telling me she wanted me to be a school teacher. That's the best job for you. And she was insistent that I be a teacher. So I wanted to satisfy her. So I... Um, I wanted to get into USC School of Education and get that credential. Right. Well, after I took the, that examination, I wanted to know whether I was accepted. Yeah. So about a week later, I went back to the office of USC um, to find out uh, from the secretary of the School of Education whether I am accepted. Right. Whether I passed that t- examination. She looked at the list. She said, yes, you were accepted. Oh, nice. Boy, I felt good. A relief. That would make my mother happy. Yeah. And uh, I turned around, thanked her, and I turned around, and I walked halfway towards uh, the entrance and was leaving the office. And then the secretary said, oh, Mr. Kawano. So I turned around and right. went back. She said, I think you'd be interested to know uh-huh. That your score in the entrance examination was the highest. Oh, wow. Look score. at you. Not only for that instance, entrance examination for that instance, but the highest score ever made in the history of USC examination into the School of Education. Wow. That's what you told me. Well, I was so glad I passed up. And yeah. I was accepted that I, I didn't give much thought to that. I just thanked her and I walked out. And I didn't give it much thought. But afterward, I said, doggone it. Why would we say that? I'm Is this true or false? I right. was thinking of going back there until it proved to me. Yeah, you want to, to see it for a fact. <laughs> but that's what she told me. And I right. never went back to check it. I was just glad that I 
past Andrew's examination. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I wouldn't go back and check it either, Freddie. I'd just no. run with whatever they said. Yeah, you know? i let it go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just take it for what it is, yeah. man. Hang on one second, Freddie. There's a little line bust. There you go. So, so that's the thing of USC, but um, would you tell the story about giving the, the graduation speech at Ohio State University? Would that uh, be something you oh, could? Oh, yes. Um, at Ohio State University, I entered it in 1949, right. three years in the U.S. Army Air Corps. Uh, I say I, I was the Army Air Corps when I uh, enlisted, right. but about halfway through, on the President Truman's uh, orders, they changed the name to U.S. Air Force gotcha. so that it would be on the same status as U.S. Army and U.S. Navy. Now you have the U.S. Air Force instead of calling it Army Air Corps. Right. <clears throat> and uh, uh, I remember that uh, uh, we who were members of the Army Air Corps at right. the time had to uh, go to the auditorium to uh, look at the new uniform, the blue uniform that was desired. Okay. I mean, a design for the soldiers to wear. And we had to vote whether which style of uniform we wanted. They had models walking in front of the stage uh, with different styles of uniform. We chose, I think everyone else did, the Air Force blue and the silver button. Correct. Yes, okay. Sir. And um, so that was a, an interesting part of uh, the making of the U.S. Air Force. Right. And I'm glad I was able to be a part of it at the time they changed over. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. And and so when, when, when you were, were you at, you were OU after the Air Force, is that correct? Or were you at OU and then the Air Force? Well, I was uh, in the U. See, I joined right. in 1946. Right. Joined the, uh, it's called the U.S. Army Air Corps. Correct. So it was the Air Corps right. of the U.S. Army. Right, which so eventually became the Air Force. we wore the same uniform as the Army. Yeah, yeah. Then halfway through, about 1947, President Truman made a separate branch right. of the Air Corps, and it's no longer called the U.S. Army Air Corps, but it right. was called the U.S. Air Force. Okay. And so when I, uh, uh, it's odd, when I uh, was discharged in 1949, right. at home, <laughs> I have two discharge papers. One says I was discharged from the U.S. Army. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then another says I was discharged from the U.S. Air Force. Yeah, I guess they would have to take care of both, right? Because yeah. you were in both, technically yeah. speaking. That's interesting. And then then after that, you went to Ohio State University? Uh, yes. Uh, after Rob, I uh, came back uh, from Japan on right. a troop ship. which landed in uh, Seattle. And um, I told um, the... Uh, my officer that I need to get to Ohio State University right. on a such and such a date because that's the day the school begins. Right. And I've been accepted. Right. In fact, in addition to GI Bill, Ohio State gave me a $20,000 scholarship. Gotcha. But frankly, I didn't accept it. I just went by the GI Bill of World War II. Gotcha. And uh, they allowed me to leave just a few days early uh -huh. to get to um University on time for the first day of a school. Gotcha. And uh, one of the things that was required uh, of every freshman is that they have to take an English examination. Mm -hmm. 
if you fail the English test, you have to take English course. If you pass it, then you were required to take public speaking. Gotcha. And I passed the written examination for English. I passed the English right. examination for freshman. So I was put into a public speaking class. At the end of the semester, the professors are in different classes decide See, there's a freshman competition, public speaking competition. And my professor chose me to represent the class in the public speaking contest. Mm -hmm. So you have a, a freshman uh, public speaking competition. And in that competition, it was the auditorium was packed. Right. And they had maybe 10 or 15 judges sitting in the auditorium. Your poise, your speech, your mannerism, your topic, etc. They're checking you for those, and <clears throat> I won the first prize. Nice work, Freddie. <laughs> After I won that prize, uh -huh. a professor, Doctor Carmack, I think his name, came to see me. Mm -hmm. Told me that he's inviting me to join the Ohio State University varsity debating team. Oh, nice. And as a member of that team, I was a, a part of the debating team. Right. In addition to that, part of the oratorical contest speaker for representing Ohio State. That's great. Yeah. And then that brought you to uh, your last year where, I, if I remember the story correctly, you weren't valedictorian, but they, the valedictorian let you speak in his place. Is that correct? Well, uh, one day, so normally... See, I, I can tell you the truth. I never gave it a thought right. that I would ever be giving a valedictory address because my grades were not that good. Right. I, uh, Did girls get in the way or something? Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> partying, partying, partying. There you go. All that uh, time <laughs> got in the way. In fact, I was missing so many classes, I got a notice. Oh, no. <laughs> the federal government, government saying they're going to cut off the GI Bill of Rights. Oh, no. I don't start attending the class more. Oh, I was wow. coming home so late. Yeah. You know? So um, I made sure that I attended the class after that. Yeah. But my grade point of my average one was not a straight A or anything like that. See, normally... The valedictory speaker right. is a straight-A student or whose grade point average is the highest of the graduating class. Right. And that is what I had been expecting, so I never even dreamed that I'm going to be the valedictory yeah. speaker. But one day, the, the dean of men called me into his office, and he said, uh, Mr. Kawano, the senior counsel has voted have you represent them as a valedictory speaker for the graduating class. Right. Will you accept it? And you did, of course. I did? Yeah. Because it would be an honor, but I wanted to ask him, I wanted to ask the dean, don't you have the highest grade point average? I'm, I don't have that kind of grade right. point average. But he said, will you accept it? And the senior counsel wanted me to be the uh, valedictory speaker. So I said, all right, I will accept it. Yeah, that's cool. Do and you, by chance, remember the first line of that speech? It's a, a couple of years back, let's be honest. Oh, that's about uh, 
you're talking I should have remembered it I think you said you started in 49 so you would be done in 50 53 yeah, yeah. 53 54 there you go yes, yeah I, I gotcha yeah uh, did you start with a if joke I get back if I get back <laughs> I, I can um, think it but uh, I really did not think much of the speech I, right I, I debated with myself and with my friends right uh, what would be the, in your opinion, what would be the best way to deliver the valedictory address? Uh, so that I could give my political views and um, give a controversial speech. I could do that. Yeah. And McCarthyism and all that was rampant in those days. Is that what you did? Is it, did you end up doing a... No. But then I said to myself, gee, the students already studied uh, right. for four years. Their parents are all waiting to congratulate them. Right. We have now received our diploma. Right. Diploma already shook hands. And the valedictory speaker comes last. And we did, talked about it. And I thought, in my opinion, the students are not interested in listening to my political views. Right. They've already heard a powerful speech by uh, the main speaker who has already spoken for about 30 minutes. Right. And uh, the students who are graduating are tired sitting there. They went to school for four years and they got the diploma in their hand and they never listened to another guy yes. talking politics. I would so agree. We, so therefore, I made the decision that we both thank uh, our professors and um I believe I uh, thank first the parents. Uh, uh, that's one thing I remember. Right. Uh, who helped us and encouraged us and paid for um, all these expenses and everything uh, and encouraged us to go to university and graduate. Yeah. And uh, uh, then I thank the professors who helped us and um, the administration who ran a, a wonderful, great university. You have to speak well of Ohio State. Right. And then I thanked all the students there of how we learned just from each other. Yeah. Boy, I will tell you what you can learn just by being together with the students and meeting together, just going for coffee together. What a growth for yeah. me it was. What a learning period it was for me. That well, was as important to me as learning the subject matter. Right. Yes. Oh, you mean the social aspects yeah, and, the social and growing aspect, and yeah. sure. The growth, that was important. Yeah. When I became a teacher, that was the most important thing. Right. That I had learned that I carried with me into teaching. And um, so uh, uh, those are the things I touched upon. And um, right. then the farewell to Ohio State University. And I tried to make it brief and not long-winded speech. Right. And I think I did it exactly right because when I finished, the, the, oh, there were thousands of people sitting and went up into a, almost an explosive dynamite. Oh, and nice. There were campus going up in the air, throwing it, a cap in the air, yeah. everything. And when everything was finished, guess what? What happened? Now... First one comes one person with his and her mother and father to sign the program card. Right. 
he's just wanted my autograph. Oh, that's fun. Sign my autograph. Yes. Then more and more students are waiting to get my. I'm seeing a long line of them. Right. You're kind of like a superstar at that yeah, point, like Freddie. Yeah, a long line. Yeah, yeah. I'm still waiting in line just to get to get my autograph. Yeah. And uh, so I did that. That was my experience. That's great, man. Uh, as a uh, valedictory speaker on the graduation yeah. night. Uh, I remember that story, but it's always fun to hear you say it another time, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I check and see what you embellish one thing against the other. So you get done with that, and now you go to USC, which you talked briefly about, but then you end up becoming a teacher in LA, Unifi LA Unified Schools. No, wait a second. <laughs> okay, I'm rushing <laughs> you, right? something funny. <laughs> the night before graduation. Right. My friends and I. Uh-huh. Decided we're going to celebrate. <laughs> right. Oh, well, you had a habit for that at this point. <laughs> we went to Dayton, Ohio. Right. We went to jazz club. And, uh -huh. and we drank uh, celebrating. It. Right. I figured I could hold it uh, and still give the speech. Uh-oh. Then coming home, we stopped by his father's house. Right. And uh, his father was a huge wine cellar man. Yeah. That, uh, his father was a very rich man. Uh, um, a big hotel, a whole lot of hotels in that state. So there were four of us together, and uh, we celebrated at the jazz club, and then we went on to, the, to his father's home to the cellar and drank right. some more. By the time I got back to um, the camp, back to the campus, uh -huh. to tell you the truth, I was seeing double. Nice. I mean, not nice. We can't advocate that in today's Absolutely. world, Freddie. But <laughs> seeing double, and um, then after got back to the campus of Ohio State, right? Dormitories. They're saying, Fred, you got to speak. You got to give the speech right. tomorrow. All the people, all the students living in our dormitories are not getting worried. Right. <laughs> That I, the word is you've, you're a little, a little intoxicated, exactly. Yeah, the the uh, graduation is 9 o'clock in the morning. Right. So you know what the students did? I have no idea, Fred. The shower room. Uh-oh. Cold shower time, It's a huh? long shower with a shower from both sides. Right. And one guy had me, held me up on my left, under my arm, another guy on the right. Yeah. We are they're walking we back and forth, back and forth, back and forth in the shower room, right. sobering me up. And I will tell you, I sobered up just in time. Just in time, yep. nick of time. <laughs> Good work, Freddie. That's funny. So, so you did end up teaching though at LA Unified School District, right? And if I'm not mistaken, you had something to do with developing the lunch program as well as you were the first teacher to teach African-American studies, is that correct? Oh, yes. Well, uh, something, there has to be something that sparks something before right. you do, you know, take any action. One day I was teaching, and I was at Fauché Junior High School, right. and uh, there was this 12-year-old girl uh, during lunchtime. Uh-huh. Did not go out for lunch with the rest of the students. Right. Last time, everybody goes out. But she stayed in my room as though she was sad about something. Okay. 
And I noticed she was lingering in the classroom. And I told her that it's lunchtime. Everybody's going to lunch. Come on, let's go to lunch. But she was still lingering. Seemed so concerned about something. Right. And then she said to me, Mr. Kawanam, why does my mother love my sister more than she loves me? Mm-hmm. I thought that's a drastic question to ask. It is, isn't it? And um, so I told her, well, mothers love their children equally. Right. I don't think there's favoritism. Mothers love their children. And she said, no. Wow. My mother does not love me mm-hmm. as much as she loves my older sister. And I could not persuade her to accept that the other mother loves her children equally. Right. So then I, de- I decided I'll ask her the question. Why do you think that your mother does not love you as much as your older sister? Uh-huh. She paused and she seemed to be agonized almost. Then she said, because my sister is lighter skinned than I am. Oh boy. I didn't know what to say. I was faced with this question for the first time. Uh-huh. I did not know what to say. But I made up my mind that I'm going to find out why such a feeling and an incident could appear in the home about things with their own children. And I searched for a book that I could learn about ideas that would be contained in that book that the girls were talking about. Uh-huh. And uh, I did come across a book called, I believe it was called uh, The Negro Family Okay. by um, E. Franklin Frazier, full-ranking professor, black professor mm-hmm. at the University of Chicago. And it was an eye-opener. Right. I read that book, and uh, boy, that answered a lot of questions for me. Right. And so I decided that... What I have to know is the historical background that the black people had gone through Okay. for me to understand that kind of situation the girl was describing. And I studied it carefully and began studying more and more about the black situation in America. And uh, as a result of that, when I was at at, uh, Horseman Junior, I mean, uh, Fosse Junior High School, Uh At lunchtime, uh, I had a discussion group okay. where some of the black students uh, brought their own lunch and ate lunch together with me in the, in the, at lunch period. Right. And uh, that was the uh, beginning of uh, what was going to end up as a black history class at uh, George Washington Carver Junior High School when I'm transferred there with uh, the vice principal who became a principal at Carver, he wanted me to go with him. Right. And uh, when I was there at the Carver Junior High School, the vice principal said, Mr. Kawano, I have $18,000 extra. Right. It's the government money. I will give it to, 
youth to develop a um, class that would have to do with um, what they call the Negro folklore. Mm -hmm. He wanted me to teach Negro folklore during the summer school. Right. And he said he has $18,000 for that purpose to buy books and so on. I said, all right, I will accept it, but I don't know much about folklore. But we're trying to find out about it. And then I have to find students that would sign up for the course. It was difficult to find black students at that time who wanted to study black history. Uh, It would appear to me as though they didn't want to have anything to do with black. It was the 1950s. uh, Mm -hmm. Years and uh, the black movement had not started yet. Uh, Martin Luther King was only beginning to become famous, okay. but he wasn't as famous as uh, he later became. And uh, so um, I had to get 35 students to sign up before I can teach uh, that summer class. I had to persuade uh, some students to sign up for it. But I told the principal, it's not possible for me to teach the folklore because folklore comes out of black history. So um, I want to change the name of the subject. Instead of black folklore, I'm uh-huh. going to call it the history of the Negro people in America. Right. And we began calling it Negro history. And um, had 35 students. That was the summer school of 19... 19- 65. Wow. When they had the Watts riot. Right. Yeah. And um, then in 1966, I was able to get more students to sign up for black history. Okay. So we had more classes. By the time 67 or 68 comes around, we now, because I was developing a course of study, mm-hmm. which was a very complicated but a very... um historical, mm-hmm. and uh, it is going to be accepted in the LA Unified School District for a five-unit course, and it could be counted towards graduation. Right. And uh, so um, by uh, 1968, uh, 69, I was teaching three or four classes in black history. Oh, nice. Yeah. And uh, while I was uh, uh, teaching that class, the principal gets promoted, and he's going to be out of uh, school, but another um, uh, principal comes in. Mm-hmm. And uh, in September of 1968, uh, while I was on my duty in front of the school, see, every after-school teacher has a duty post right. until the school clears out. And I was given the post of the front of the school because... Can you imagine this? Grown men that are 20, 25, almost 30 years of age would gather men. There must be about 40 of them okay. gathering in front of the school trying to pick up their quote-unquote girlfriend. Oh, boy. Oh, no. The girls that are leaving, they all have to pick them up. Right. I mean, was able to get them to go on to the other side of the street. You right. Know, it was very difficult have to tell them to get out of here you see yeah. you know you go on the other side of the street uh, you know and um, finally I was able to persuade the police uh, to do something about it 
to bring their uh, black and white pass by them. Yeah. At that time, they passed by them enough times and sometimes they stopped there because I did not want to have grown men yeah. picking up junior high school girls while they're leaving school. Yeah, that's pretty good of you, Freddie, yeah, making well, sure everything's okay that way. You have to way. do that. Yeah. And um, uh, you do all these things, and then in order to do what I did, you have to be kind of rougher. All Even right. if they're big guys like that, they realize that you're a school teacher right in right. front of the school, you're defending the students, so they'll back off. And I was able to get them backing off in yeah. front of the school, across the street. And um, so I get a, a reputation as a tough guy. Right, a guy who's looking out for other people. Yeah. Yeah, that's and, good. Uh, so now comes um, the beginning of 1968 school year. Okay. That's um, September of 1968. I was on my duty. And the principal comes up to me and he says, uh, Mr. Kawano, we are going to have an organization called the Black Student Union right. on our campus, and I would like to have you be the sponsor and advisor to that club. And I said, me? Look, more than 50% of the faculty of uh, Carver Junior High School are black. Right. They know more about the black students than I do. I'm a Japanese American, and, and I don't know enough about the, the conditions and situations of blacks, whereas these teachers uh, right. who are black themselves have lived among them. So they know more about the uh, feelings and uh, so on about the black students. So you should appoint someone who is black. Right. For an organization such as the Black Student Union. Yeah, that would make sense, right? Yes, it would. And uh, the principal said to me, all right, I will try to find a black teacher to, to be the advisor and the sponsor. Right. The next day he comes over to me and says, I couldn't find anyone oh, man. to take the well, one day. Right. You know, I don't think he even tried. Because he knew he wanted you to do it. He wanted me to do it, yeah. but you're going to find out the reason why. Yeah. Hey, this is John. We'll be right back next week with the second part of my conversation with the amazing Fred Kawano here on the Mobile Radio Carnival via the CEF.world.